remember, I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <laughs> Somebody's got a case of the Mondays. <laughs> Welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, the voice of Young Adult Cancer. I'm your co-host, Matthew Zachary, a proud 18-year young adult survivor of brain cancer. My fabulous co-host, Andy Goodman, still on medical leave. We wish her well and can't wait to have her back here live with us in studio. It is not okay that 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer each and every year. So... Got cancer under 40? Sucks, huh? Time to get busy living, folks, because the Stupid Cancer Show is changing the world one chemo infusion at a time. I'm Kenny Kane, co-founder of Stupid Cancer, welcoming all of our first-time and returning listeners here on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, iHeartRadio Talk, or listening to the archives on stupidcancershow.org. Tonight's show, a very special broadcast, Single Fathers, of cancer. Bereavement from cancer is one of the most difficult parts of the uh, dealing with this crappy disease. Join us tonight for uh, Bereavement Roundtable where we will be talking to Dr. Justin Yop, who is an assistant professor at UNC School of Medicine, Department of Psychiatry, and uh, Matt Herring, who is a bereaved spouse, co-founder of Young Cancer Spouses, about coping with the loss of a loved one due to cancer and the survivor spotlight on Cindy Gross. And I am Maureen Sweet, manager of programs and operations here at Stupid Cancer, and I will be live tweeting throughout the broadcast at Chemo Deck. So send me your questions and feedback at any time with the hashtag SC Radio. All right. We're back on the show. We are back on the show. Did a week really pass? It seems like an eternity. It's only been snowing. It's only been snowing. It's only been snowing. There's been like no anything, just snow. Yes. I spoke with my almost 65-year-old Ohioan mother yesterday, and she thinks this winter is stupid. So that's how we know that this winter is over winter. So she's the litmus test of stupidity. She's been dealing with winters in Ohio forever, so this is absurd to her. It is beyond absurd. I mean, we've had bad winters. We've had Mm -hmm. really bad winters, but they haven't lasted for like, 12 weeks straight. Yeah, sometimes it's cold, sometimes it's snowy, but right. it's not snowy and cold, and it's just not stopping. But then it's warm, and then freezes again. Oh, yeah, and yeah. Then, then just... it rains for a minute and turns into ice. That's I'm great. still impressed that, like, you know, nothing really shuts down the city. Like, Sandy shut down the city, right? Mm-hmm. It took Sandy to shut down the city 
We'd rather that not happen again. So no, of course not. But, but <laughs> schools didn't close. Roads yeah, didn't close. Yeah. They were, you know, limited accidents here and there. Mm-hmm. Just the potholes are really what's killing the city now. Yeah. But you don't drive, so you wouldn't. Nope, never. Good for you. Love it. Potholes on the F train. Potholes on the F train. <laughs> Have that transferred? <laughs> well, hello. Hi there, Kenny Gain. How are you? I, uh... I don't know how I am. Are you psychologically exhausted from the epic weekend success? I am. So Friday we decided to do a 50% off sale in the store, and 250 orders and a eight-hour shift on Sunday. Here mm-hmm. we are. So Has thank it, you to everyone. Yes, thank you to all of our – and most of them are new people, right? I think so, yeah. Yeah, it's really impressive. So what were some of the top sellers? Uh, people always love the wristbands. They love the stupid cancer shirts in any variety. Uh, we sold a lot of hoodies. And uh, because it's stupid winter, according to Maureen. It is stupid winter. <laughs> it is. Uh, yeah, so a little bit of everything. Amazing. Excited to see where we end up. It was a good litmus test to see like what we're. Yes, people still love fifty percent off sales. No, no, I mean like to see what, <laughs> what the trends would be, what people would choose to buy from our store, what they didn't buy. It's. It, I think it's. A so good... They didn't buy any albums. That you made. Shut up. <laughs> so, I need to take that out of the store. Yeah, <laughs> remove my albums from the store. I would say that's a, a really good idea. And we're also doing something special. Also, we are giving away an iPad Mini. We are. Just one. Just one. It's not an epic 50% off sale, but... Um, it's still an opportunity. Yeah. And New York Lottery would say that you've got to be in it to win it. So, yep. stupidcancer.org slash iPad. And Sign up, and you could win... An iPad. Yes. The now, drawing is March 1st. Yes. So very, very cool. Yes. Um, anyway, quick update on Instapeer. We uh, are on our way. I'm interviewing attorneys, which is nice because we need to make sure that if we're releasing a product that it doesn't like make people want to sue us, Yeah. which is a problem. So like Facebook or any other mobile app, you never really know whether the person you're speaking to is actually not a creepy 39-year-old guy from Brooklyn. Oh, wait, that's me. Sorry. It's not a 75-year-old man mm-hmm. from the Bronx who's pretending to be a 12-year-old girl. And there's nothing that... <laughs> on this episode of Big Time. Who's that guy on the, where he, he, he's, um, he crashes the house of like the sex offenders? Yeah, the guy from Dateline. I don't know his name. Whatever his name is. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, that guy. dude. Yeah, that yeah. dude. <laughs> Um, like, what, are you, what are you doing with that six pack? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that guy. Um, but we're looking at attorneys. We're going through another round of business development. There's a brand new elevator pitch that I'm working on. A couple of new people. They're really excited about it. And uh, we did shoot. We're doing final editing on the new video for Kickstarter, okay. launching March 1st, hopefully. Cool. And uh, got all new mock-ups. It's like it's like a dream come true to see physically see what this is going to look like from vision that Kenny and I had from like, what, a thousand years ago. Yep, feels mm-hmm. like it. It's really cool. Really, really cool. Nice. Well, we're starting a new segment here for a couple of weeks. Maureen is going to be our chief Olympics sportscaster, consultant, accountant, um, and uh, I feel like you need to wear a tie when you do this. I do feel it. Like I, need, I need a tie and a green screen. I'm going to, all right, Olympospondent. How's that? Olymp- Olympospondent. That works. Um, but this is the last week of the Olympics. Well, there might be one next week. All right. Well, but we're pretty much done. I'm going to do sports corresponding, though. Look at me okay, go. Okay. Go ahead. Um, so what's going on? Three. So last week, <laughs> so last week uh, we talked a little bit about the Olympics and how we were excited for it to kick off. And I was very embarrassed that I did not know if there were any cancer survivors competing in the Olympics. But now I know, and there are. 
and our hats off to them. So um, two that I found that are competing in the Olympics right now, Brian Fletcher on the U.S. Nordic Combined team. That is Nordic Combined needs ski jump and cross country. Um, 27-year-old ALL survivor, had a childhood cancer, and his brother, Taylor, also competed this year. He is 23 and sees his older brother as his inspiration. So cheers to Brian and to Taylor and also to Stephanie Bowler, uh, thyroid cancer survivor on the German team, 32 years old, and just won the bronze in the cross-country relay for Germany. So congrats to her on beating thyroid cancer in 2012, coming back in 2014, and winning an Olympic medal. So not so shabby. Not too shabby at all. Right. Um, We've got a couple of Paralympic athletes. I might talk about those in the next couple of weeks because the Paralympics are just getting started. Yes. Um, but, yeah, as for these Olympics, really pumped for Stephanie and Brian that they can be there and great inspiration to all of us that, you know, whatever, whatever cancer, going to do other stuff. Damn straight. Going to go to Sochi and compete in Russia. Yes. Yes. What a disaster Sochi is. <laughs> so, well, it, is that the truth or are you just reading like the media? Stuff? Well, that's, that's the debate. Is it propaganda or is it fact? I mean, I think it's a little bit of both. I think in any reporting you have to kind of meet somewhere in the middle. It's probably certainly not the best run Olympics of all time, but I don't think it's necessarily a hellhole. You can't argue with the media tweeting like their hotels have no lobbies and no, that, that guy that had the busters bathroom door. Yeah. <laughs> so funny. Yeah, but I mean, the Olympics are turning out great. I yeah. mean, all of the courses are well prepared. Everything's well attended. It looks great. I enjoyed hearing about how the Under Armour suits made the uh, this um, ice skaters slower. What do they call them? The speed skaters? Oh, really? Yeah, they were saying that the combination of Under Armour and whoever the collaborative partner on the suit was, like they just made a suit that was slower than oh. in the past. Whoops. It was a little not last enough, perhaps. Yeah, I don't know. Also, bone to pick with speed skating. They're called those outfits skin suits. Like, that's hmm. the name for that. <laughs> Is that a, a skin suit? They call it a skin suit. That, like, that call them, be, I'm wearing a skin suit in the Olympics this that year. That can go so many wrong ways. <laughs> well, you, you really, you could have named it something else. But I did learn something today. What did you learn? The skeleton. Yes. Is the most scary thing I've ever heard of next to base jumping. Sure. Tell us about Skeleton MC. Apparently, it's the luge facing forward on your stomach. Yep. Head first. They got on the sled and they're like, no, I'm not going to go for it. <laughs> I'm going to turn this around and lead with my skull. <laughs> um, and yeah, they it's go for it. not good. okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I still think I could be a sledder. I think so. It's not too late. It's not too late, right? 19? 19? Yeah, just, just, just turn 19. Okay, good. I drink my whiskey ginger. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I think I could be a sledder. So if anyone out there has sled coach connections, let me know. I'll have to find you a mountain. Yeah. Well, sled coach connections in one mountain, please. Very nice. Well, uh, let's kick off tonight's show with our first guest. Cindy Gross. A passionate data geek who loves to talk about big data, sci-fi, gay rights, human rights, all sorts of rights, with the help all sorts of rights, left and rights, with the help of her friends and medical providers, she came out of breast cancer with only a few scars and a bit of sunburn to show for it. Please welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, the lovely, talented Cindy Gross. Cindy. Hello. Thank you for having me on. Oh, it's so great. Thank you for uh, your willingness to join us this evening. Where are you calling in from? I am in Boise, Idaho. Wow. Anybody know well, where that one is? Not yeah. to. Convince me to come to Idaho. Idaho is an absolutely beautiful place where it is sunny and gorgeous most of the year, 
except for the past few weeks. Um, you can do any outdoor activity. I've heard people put up challenges, you know, try to find me something you can't do. I mean, they surf on the river. There's rafting. There's uh, snow tubing, snow skiing, water skiing, fly fishing, you know, anything you want to do outdoors, you can come to Idaho and do it. So would you say the state is underrated? Well, we like to keep it secret so that nobody uh, comes in crowds <laughs> in here because, you know. Otherwise, it'll look like New York. That'll be a disaster. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How long have you been there? I've lived here since 2007. I came from Texas, and I can tell you that if I never have to go back to Texas again, I'll be just fine. Texas, not a sponsor. That's okay to say here. <laughs> So uh, so let's let's start talking about your 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 cancer story here. You were diagnosed with breast cancer. Uh, how recently? Last year. So I had a mammogram last summer, and they said, "Oh, there's a shadow. It's probably nothing. Come back in. We'll do an ultrasound, and uh, let's start with a couple mammograms first. And they kept taking more and more pictures. Then they sent me in for the ultrasound and said, you know, we, we think it was just a shadow. It's, it's nothing. And I said, well, I don't know. You know, my mom died of breast cancer, and I, I really, I'm not sure I'm comfortable with this. And they said, well, if you want an MRI, you can go to our high-risk breast clinic, and you can talk to a medical oncologist and a surgeon and a genetic counselor, and they might prescribe an MRI. I said, okay, sure. And the surgeon took one look at my mammogram, and he said, let's pull up last year's. And he said, you know, you're going in for a biopsy. So if I hadn't pushed them, they, you know, it would have been another year before they found it, and it could have doubled in size twice within a year. That's interesting. Why do you, uh, to, or to what do you attribute the fact that they didn't seem to take it terribly seriously? Well, the surgeon even said that given the mammogram results and given what he saw of the pictures they took during the ultrasound, if he hadn't looked at the previous year's mammogram, he might have said it was okay as well because the ultrasound didn't really find anything. Ultrasound gets a lot of false negatives. So it was difficult to find because of where it was at, and it was really, really tiny. It was less than a millimeter, less than the, the tip of my index finger. So it, it was hard to find. If I hadn't pushed, and then he, um, the surgeon, when I was in there for the counseling, he went ahead and uh, did an exam, and he pushed harder than anybody's ever pushed before. He found it. He found the lump. And so the next time they went in and did an ultrasound, they were able to concentrate on that area and the ultrasound was much more accurate because it wasn't just looking at the entire breast. It was looking at one particular spot. And, and I didn't know this, that mammograms show the results in an arc. They don't show exactly where the spot is. So if you look at a picture of a mammogram, it will look as if there's an exact location, but because of the way they squished the breast up in there, it's really just showing you it's somewhere in this area. And that's why sometimes ultrasounds don't find things. And then you've got MRIs, which give a lot of false positives. So they don't want people getting $4,000 MRIs when it gives so many false positives and follow-up tests that aren't necessary. Again, extremely interesting. Definitely information we've discussed on the show before about the, 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 the challenges, the pros and cons of cancer prevention. But my condolences on the loss of your, your mother. What, did that raise any red flags with your doctors? Yes, 
uh, so the fact that my mom had previously had breast cancer was of interest. The fact that she died from it was interesting, but nobody had ever asked me, you know, any details about it. And when I went in for the genetic counseling, you know, they, they draw out the little chart and they say, oh, you know, most people have a, I don't remember, a 11% chance given this history or whatever. We're going to up yours to 20% or something. And I said, you know, when my mom got breast cancer the second time and everybody's ears perked up and they went, your mom had breast cancer twice? Oh, we're raising you way up on the chart. And, but nobody had ever even asked me, you know, did she just have breast cancer once? What type did she have? It was just she had it, check mark, let's move on. Uh, but her, her having it twice really moved me up, which is interesting because I was tested for 49 genetic mutations after my lumpectomy. I am not only negative for all mutations, but I don't even have any variants. And the genetic counselor said she has never, ever seen a result come back with no variants or no, no questionable mutations where they're not even sure. So it wasn't even hereditary. But because my mom had breast cancer twice, that's why they were more willing to do the extra work and do the extra exams. And, and my insurance company was more willing to pay for a lot of the tests. All right. Well, then, again, that that's really incredible. And kudos to you for being sort of a self-advocate right out of the gate. That's not typically the case for a lot of people out there. Uh, have you always been precocious and, and self-advocating? Um, yeah, probably. <laughs> I, I do. I do speak up a lot, and I ask a lot of questions. And I I sometimes ask the questions that other people don't ask. And I, you know, my friends will tell me I'm not asking the obvious questions everybody would ask. But I I do ask the the unusual things sometimes, and and my mind kind of goes around these things. And I also work with something called big data. And big data is a new set of technologies that is being used in the cancer community to help refine the testing that's being done. So I, from my work perspective, I knew a lot more about the false negative, false positive, not just in cancer screening, but in machine learning and some of these big data terminology and, and testing type of things. So it really made me question what was going on maybe a bit more than the average person would. And for the listeners out there, big data is Skynet from Terminator, and we just have to make sure it doesn't gain a life of its own, correct? <laughs> yes, the, the NSA used big data. Yes, that, that's true. Uh, but it's also every time you go and do a, a, a web search, every time that you buy something, you know, things are tracked about the environment, what you clicked on, how many things you clicked on. That's all ambient data that helps improve your experience the next time you go back to that same site or the next time that you go to purchase something. And you may not realize it, but it does a lot of good things for you as well. And it may help solve cancer. It may help solve traffic problems. You know, there, there are all sorts of social good things. And it, it's actually, you know, I was at a conference recently, and they actually have a whole track on social good where people are trying to use big data to solve all the problems of the world. And because you're able to put a lot more data into the system than you could before and get results back much faster. You can try a lot of things, and that's what's make, what makes it so interesting in cancer research. You can sequence entire genomes in hours instead of months. You can try a whole bunch of different ways of looking at test results and see what percentage of false positives and positives and false negatives it gives you if you use different techniques or different cutoff points in ways that you couldn't do before. So big data may be Skynet, but it's also something that might save the world. <laughs> exactly. And and I, I don't 
first say dabble in it, but our board chairman, Dr. Leonard Sender out of UCI and, and Chalk Children's in Southern California is working with a lot of genomic solutions, digital startups in this sector using big data. And he is one of the few oncologists that does whole genome sequencing on his children in the cancer center and finds them like trial matches that they never otherwise would have been matched to based on their DNA. And mm. it's a great example of using that. Uh, it, it's kind of making the double-blind study irrelevant because everyone's a snowflake, but it's exciting to think about how you can go from, oh, I think the Human Genome Project took like $2 billion in 10 years to do one person, and like you said today, it's like an hour at CVS. Maybe not quite CVS, yeah. but... <laughs> yeah, it's... It's, it's an amazing change in, in what we can do. And, and because I am so data-focused, I do it for work. Uh, my friends were also really amazed at how I just, once I got the cancer diagnosis, they're all like, why aren't you in a puddle on the floor? And I'm like, because I have my data. I've, I've got my list of statistics. I know what my chance of this and that and something else are. I, I know that what my chances of BRCA1 and BRCA2 are. You know, I've, I've forgotten most of the numbers now. But for several months, I could quote any breast cancer statistic that was out there, and that made me feel in control of the situation. And I was turning around and blogging about everything I was finding out, everything I was feeling, you know, when they injected me with uh, radiation to try to find where my lymph nodes were. You know, I, I asked them, can I take pictures of everything? I took pictures of the, uh, the dye that they injected, which is in, you know, these little things that have uh, these radioactive symbols on them and, you know, I've had a lot of people come up to me and say they've learned a lot about cancer and not they don't feel as scared now because I shared that data that also made me... So that, that opens up a whole other conversation about the stigma of do people really want to know this information or do you feel more empowered to have it once you're already in need of it? I, I think some people don't want to talk about it at all, but I was surprised by the amount of... Uh, questions that I got from people who just wanted to know basic things. I mean, some people just wanted to know what can I do for for you, which is very good. But I also had a lot of people asking detailed questions about radiation and excuse me, and chemotherapy, which I didn't have. Um, sorry, I had radiation, but I I did not have chemotherapy. So I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but tonight's show is actually on bereavement, and I was wondering if you'd be willing to share with us what it was like to be much younger uh, and maybe a caregiver to your mother or what that was like to be impacted by her passing from cancer in the 90s. By the way, I was diagnosed in the 90s, so I'm all too familiar with how horrible things were back then. Right. So uh, I was in my 20s. I was out of college uh, when my mom got cancer the second time. And I was not her primary caregiver, but it was very devastating. And we knew for a long time that she was not going to get better the second time she got cancer. So the, the first time, everybody was optimistic and things seemed to be going good. And the second time, I mean, it was just instantly they told her nothing can be done. So in a way, it was good that there was a long time to grieve. There was a long time to get used to the fact that she was going to be gone. And she said, all right, I want to go to Vegas. I want to go to Disney World. And we did. Uh, and that, that was good. But it was, it was hard. It was hard to deal with it. And the support systems back then, it wasn't just that the medicine was different. The entire support system 
in the 90s was just horrible. She had nobody to tell her anything. She had nobody to help her with anything beyond the immediate medical needs. You know, I walked down to my local hospital, which is a 10-minute drive away from me. I was assigned a nurse navigator who answered every question. She said, call me at midnight. I don't care. Just any question you have. She helped me pick my oncologist based on my personality and their personality because that's what I wanted. That's what I asked her for. And in the 90s, that wasn't available, but this was just a standard thing that they did down at my local hospital. And, you know, I've I've got a list of um, massage therapy that I could have had and acupuncture and everything offered through that same hospital if I wanted it. So it, it makes me sad to think my mom did not have those options and she didn't have that level of care that I had available to me. Hey, Cindy, this is Maureen. Um, one other thing you mentioned on your bio here is that you do a lot of work for LGBT rights, um, I'm assuming at the state, local, national levels. Um, and you mentioned here that you relate your cancer story similar to fighting for LGBT equality. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so we, we had a, actually a big protest down at our state capitol today to try to add the word sexual orientation and gender identity to Idaho's Human Rights Act, and we mm-hmm. can't get the legislators to listen. And sometimes I feel like it's that same way with cancer care where you you talk to a provider and you're trying to tell them, you know, I don't feel right. I don't feel like you've given me the right diagnosis or I don't feel like things are completely explained to me, and they assume that, well, we don't know what we're talking about. Um, you know, why would we push back on saying that the ultrasound showed that there was no, uh, nothing to worry about? So there, there's a lot of similarity sometimes in the people not listening, but there's also a lot of discrimination. I mean, I, I'm lucky. I didn't have any close friends who ran and hid when I had a, a cancer diagnosis, but there's a lot of stigma attached to uh, people don't know what to say. They don't, they don't know what to ask. And then I feel very left out and alone sometimes in that I, I feel apologetic. I had a simple little surgery. I have two tiny little scars, and I'm cured. I mean, my oncologist keeps telling me don't call it remission, call it cured. They caught it so early. I feel guilty that I don't quite fit in with the cancer community. So it, there's a lot of, I don't want to say that it's as, as bad as discrimination against gay people, but there is a parallel in that, people don't know how to act around people they don't understand or people who've had an experience that they themselves haven't had. And, you know, there, there's all sorts of uh, financial issues that I personally didn't have to deal with because I work for a mega corporation with great insurance. And there are a lot of things that could be done at the local level to make it easier for people to get medical care when they need it. I have friends who said, you know, you've inspired me to go get a mammogram, but I can't afford it. And most of my friends went ahead and went in and got mammograms that talked to me about it. But some of them didn't go because they just didn't have the money. And, and that's a, something we could work on at more at a local level. Because, you know, under the Affordable Care Act, mammograms should be covered. But not everybody realizes that. And there are certain circumstances where it's not. Um, I don't know. Just it, there's a lot to fight for in that area. Right. I'd like to spend the last two or three minutes talking about your choice to blog um, and what you blog about, what your blog's website is, and what kind of response you've gotten from your amazing writings. So 
I called my blog Befriending Dragons because everything I write on there is about taking something that seems really scary and changing it into something that's friendly and fun. And a lot of people think of dragons as being these scary things. And I read a lot of sci-fi and fantasy, so to me, a lot of dragons are, you know, they're, they're the, the steed you ride into battle or they're your friend that helps you through the night. And I, I kind of thought that was a good twist on it. So I've tried to demystify and make things simpler and less scary for other people who might be going through a cancer diagnosis. And honestly, I'm an introvert, and I didn't want to explain some of these things over and over and over again to people. And by writing it in the blog, I was able to write it down once and bull who asked a little bit of overview and then say, you know, if you have more questions, here's my blog. So it, it, was, it, it was a good way, kind of like a, a diary or a journal, to get out what I was thinking, to feel like I was helping other people, and then kind of in a way to avoid interacting with people, as, as odd as that may sound. Well, I think you're wearing it well. And I do want to comment that the young adult cancer movement, I know you said you're over 40, but I'll be 40, and it's about the impact. It's, we only define it by under 40 because of public health policy. But, no, no hell, I'll be 40 soon as we're going to change the rules, right? So I, we like to talk about how it's not a contest and how the playing field can be leveled on the day you're told you have cancer. And then what happens after that is all about how you define your life. And if you think that you got off easy, someone else might think you got off easy. So it, it just depends on the perspective of where you are in the spectrum. And if someone has gone through multiple surgeries and is living with chronic disease versus someone who may have had a very simple procedure and gotten off in a sense that was not as cataclysmic or, or life-disrupting, I don't see that as anything worth outside of it's just what it is. And we're all here to support each other through these challenges. So I commend you. And, uh, you know, if that makes any psychological <laughs> difference, uh, I, I really commend you for, for choosing to get busy living. And we're big geeks here, too, and we, we love the fact that we have smart people on the show like you. Well, thank you very much. All right. Cindy Gross, uh, a quote-unquote passionate data geek who loves to talk about big data, sci-fi, gay rights, human rights, uh, blogs that, was it Befriending Dragons? I'm sorry? It's cindygross.wordpress.com, it looks like, okay. right? Yes. Is the yeah, URL? Befriendingdragons.com works as well. They, they're the same site. Oh, okay. perfect. Very good. Right. Befriendingdragons.com. Thank you so much. Good luck to you. And uh, have fun in Idaho. You, you've enticed us. All right. Thank you very much. All right. Bye. Cindy Gross. All right, Kenny. Let's uh, hit up the news here. Hello. I'm Kent Brockman, and this is I on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. Head on over to events.stupidcancer.org. That is events.stupidcancer.org, your one-stop shop calendar for all of our social and educational events nationwide. Something could be happening in your neck of the woods, and we certainly don't want you missing out. Coming on up, New York, New York, Phoenix, Arizona, Cary, North Carolina, Salt Lake City, Utah. We have a little event in Wyoming called What's Next? Get Busy Living. Check that out. And Anaheim, California, St. Paul, Minnesota, and Denver, Colorado. Very nice. All right, folks, Vegas time. Registration for the 7th Annual OMG Cancer Summit for Young Adults is in full force. 
join 500 of your fellow young adult patients, survivors, and caregivers for an epic three-and-a-half-day event that will change your life. Visit OMG2014.org to learn more. And don't forget about the OMG Players Club, your path to a $600 travel scholarship just by fundraising for stupid cancer. All right. It's always a good time to stock up in your stupid cancer gear. Many of you did it this weekend. We've got all new products and styles to choose from. Polar Vortex be damned. You'll stay nice and warm in a stupid cancer hoodie. Surf on over to stupidcancerstore.org and be proud. Wear stupid cancer. And we talked about this at the top of the show, but Stupid Cancer is launching a mobile health app called Instapeer this spring. It's going to revolutionize cancer support. We want to get you all excited about it. It's the first platform of its kind that will do automatic peer matching for cancer patients and caregivers, and it's incredibly awesome. Go to facebook.com slash Instapeer, follow at Instapeer on Twitter, and watch the video and learn more at instapeer.org. And that is your... Stupid Cancer News. All right. Game time. Joining us tonight for a very special panel on bereavement, Dr. Justin Yap is a clinical psychologist and assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry at UNC co-director of their bereavement program called Single Fathers Due to Cancer. He works with children whose parents have serious medical illnesses as well, and his research is in the area of children's adaptation to cancer. And joining him is Matt Herrick. Matt and Kara uh, moved to Texas in 1996. His wife, his late wife, so he could pursue a graduate degree in cancer biology. In 2005, she was diagnosed herself with cancer and passed away in 2007, leaving him to raise their two children as a single father. We're here to talk with both of them tonight about this very serious issue. Please welcome to the show Matt Herrick and Dr. Justin Yap. Gentlemen. Thank you very much. I appreciate you having us on. Matt, are we pronouncing your right? I don't know. I wasn't paying that much attention. Uh, we don't, no one pays attention. That's okay. Is it, is it Herrick? Herrick? Herrick, yeah. Okay, Herrick. I've okay. heard it all. Well, Matt, you and I actually go back many, many years. I remember first meeting you when you launched your website. Um, can you talk about that before we get to your wife's story? The website or just – so it, about ten years ago, probably nine years ago, I really was thinking – I mean, we look back at this young adult movement about nine or ten years ago. It seems like things really took off. And you were kind of the oddball being up in New York and not down in Texas with the rest of us. That's but right. We, yeah, it's he's still an oddball. I'm being still an oddball. The, yeah, being the spouse, there was a lot of help for all the patients, and everybody's there rallying around the patient, but nobody was there to do anything for the spouses. It's we'd get together at the meetings and we'd kind of shuffle the spouses off into the corner, and we're going to have our cancer meeting. The spouses, you go over there and entertain yourself, stay out of our way, but. Having been in this community, and I worked at MD Anderson at the time, and so a lot of these young spouses just happened to be coming through, and I was connecting with people online, and so they'd come through, and I'd sit down and meet with people, just have lunch, have coffee, and you just can't explain what it feels like to just look in somebody's eyes who is literally walking in your shoes. I mean, my friends... My parents, my family all look at me and say, I understand. And no, you don't. You don't understand. 
as much as you want to, you can't. Just like I couldn't understand what my wife was going through, she couldn't understand what I was going through. But these other spouses could understand what I was going through. And so we saw this as just a real need that was out there. So a few of us got together and formed the Young Cancer Spouses website, and we really pushed that. And we went strong for a few years before the spammers hit us. And now we're working on transferring things over to you, and hopefully we can get that up and going again. It was a very special website as I was finally starting to enter the advocacy space about, like you said, seven or eight years ago, because there really wasn't a lot of conversation around caregivers. And I think that's changed. I think that the Young Adult Cancer Collective has made a huge push towards recognizing not just the unique needs of young adults facing cancer, but their spouses, their caregivers, their, their siblings. It's, 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 and, and while we may not exactly understand what it's like to be in their shoes, we now have other people whose shoes we can look towards as well. Um, and you were a real pioneer back in the day, and I, I am sorry I did not come from Texas. Actually, I'm not sorry I wasn't from Texas, but I'm <laughs> sorry that I wasn't happened to be in Texas uh, at the genesis of all of this, this change. Um, I want to turn it over to Justin quick, and then I'd love to go back and just talk about your, your late wife, if that's cool. Um, that's great. Dr. Yeah. PhD, huh? You're pretty smart, right? Tell me about it. <laughs> Well, I'll, I'll, I'll skip over how smart I am. I'm not sure that would be a very lengthy <laughs> conversation. Um, but uh, like I said, my name's Justin, and I am uh, co-director of the Single Fathers Due to Cancer Program here at UNC in Chapel Hill. And we started our organization about uh, four, almost four years ago now. Um, my colleague Don Rosenstein and I worked uh, as mental health professionals at the hospital at UNC, and we... I uh, had several um, young mothers with cancer whom we were working with who unfortunately uh, had metastatic uh, disease and very poor prognoses, and um, several of these women unfortunately passed away, and we, Don and I got together and, and wondered about their husbands, knowing, or not knowing, but having some some idea of what they must be going through. We decided to look to see what was out there um, in terms of support groups in our area, and it was at that point that we uh, began to realize that there was not only uh, an absence of resources in our area, but that this really uh, had, had not been addressed at all anywhere in the whole world. Um, and so we started from there. We, we got up with some of our guys that we had met, and we started a support group for uh, these, are, these were all fathers whose wives uh, had died from cancer and who were raising children in the home and were, were faced with the simultaneous task of helping their children grieve the loss of their mothers, uh, you know, they're grieving themselves, figuring out, uh, you know, how in the world to be a single parent uh, and all, you know, doing all that uh, at a time of grief and, and overwhelming pain. So we've been running our support group since then, and we're, we're looking to broaden our reach. We have a website that we've developed. Uh, if I can say that, singlefathersdutocancer.org, and it has a series of videos from guys in our support group and um, some other resources because we, you know, we, we really feel like this has been a terribly overlooked population that, um, you know, after going through, you know, after being, as Matt was talking about, after being the caregiver of someone going through cancer is, uh, you know, it's a, it's a tremendous and you know, unnerving strain. And uh, to have that, you know, end with an unsuccessful or a treatment that's not successful and then have to 
uh, figure out how to be a single parent. Uh, we we felt that was we felt that was worth some attention. So we're doing trying to do our part to uh, raise awareness and to provide resources. No, and I, and I completely commend you for doing this. I don't know of many hospital like hospital specific support uh, programs that are targeted to men whose wives passed from cancer. Uh, and and it, it's very different. It's very needed, and um, it, it just goes back to this this overarching need uh, that's out there and that's currently unmet. So I want to I want to go back to Matt a bit, and I'd love you uh, to talk about Kara, your your late wife, and how that relationship was. Uh, she was diagnosed with uh, metastatic small cell neuroendocrine cancer, not a typically common disease, correct? Correct. It's pretty rare. There's not that many. There's only a few thousand cases in the country every year, and it's highly aggressive. Was there uh, was, any specific cause, like uh, any reason for that? Was there any genetic testing? Um, was there any idea of how this even happened in the first place? No, we did. Because of where I worked, I was able to get access to a lot of people that had a lot of um, ideas and new cutting-edge technology. We, we looked, and we just you really couldn't find anything. The, so the neuroendocrine cells are spread throughout the entire body. So you can get neuroendocrine tumors in any organ of the body. The most common ones are carcinoids, and there's a lot of those that exist, but they're, they have a very different phenotype. I mean, they're typically more on the benign, a little slower growing, but they release a lot of hormones, so they cause a lot of problems that way. This was a very uh, aggressive tumor that didn't release a lot of hormones, but it would spread very quickly. And this was diagnosed with tumors in the brain. So you were advocating for caregivers before you became one. Can you talk us through that? Well, I wasn't advocating for caregivers. I was working in um, doing a postdoc in cancer research at MD Anderson. So okay. I was have the I also have a PhD in cancer biology, which I got in 2001, and so it just happened to be that my wife was the one who got cancer, and I happened to have the degree. So I really wasn't doing any work on the advocacy side of cancer until my wife was affected by it, and after that, I kind of had those two things that I could really draw off of and talk to a, a wide audience because I had the personal issues, a personal experience with it, but I also had the professional experience with it on a different side. So I was able to talk to a broad range of audiences and just able to meet with a lot of different people and see that this was a need that was out there. What was the initial response when you launched YoungCancerSpouses.org? The initial response, it was really well. A lot of people really liked it. There wasn't, there was because I was at MD Anderson and met with a lot of people who were dealing with the young adult cancer world already, and that's the Young Survival Coalition and Planet Cancer, and then MD Anderson was starting to launch a site too, and I got some traction from that just because an article came out in a magazine, and the person who was launching that just happened to pick it up and just saw me there, and so we met. But we got a lot of traction on that. It was became a very niche site and it helped a lot of people. And it was also my therapy to get on there and talk to other people. But we had to be very specific about keeping who got in and who didn't get in. Because 
the the things that the spouse wants to say, and Justin, I'm sure you've heard a lot of this too, is the things that the spouse wants to say about the person they're caring for, you can't say it in front of people. You can't say right. it in public. You can't say it to your spouse because it's hard. It's a hard life, and you just want it to end. And you're tired of being the one who has to pick everything up. You're tired of people telling you, you're so strong. It's like, no, I'm not strong. I'm doing what I have to do because this is my wife. This is my family. I'm not strong. I go home and cry every night. But you can't tell people that, and people don't want to hear that. But on this board, because it was only spouses, everybody was saying it. Everybody was saying the things that they couldn't tell their spouse, they couldn't tell their family members. And we actually had one patient who hacked into his spouse's account and got on there and just blasted the spouse for everything that was being said and blasted all of us for the things that we were saying. And at that point, we I mean, we already knew we had to keep it pretty tight, but we knew there could be some serious consequences if things got out. But it's not because these aren't truthful things and they're not things that we're feeling. They're just not the politically correct and not the nice things to say and not the, the good things to feel. Right, and Justin, you're running an entire program around this narrative. I'm sure you've heard and seen pretty much everything that Matt's talking about. Absolutely, and you know, Matt, you know, really, uh, it really speaks well um, as his experiences. And, and I'm, I'm sitting here in North Carolina, nodding my head as I'm hearing them because, uh, you know, personally, I hear these a lot from the spouses of the patients that I work with, and then a lot from the from the men in our support groups who reflecting back to when their wives were being treated, uh, you know, really felt, you know, like they had to, as Matt alluded to, really uh, had to kind of follow their wife's lead a little bit. And especially with, with all the cases that we've been working with, you know, the uh, prognosis was poor, uh, metastatic illness, and, it, you know, trying to balance the, you know, hoping for a cure, hoping for a miracle, balancing that with the likelihood or probability that that wouldn't happen. And then for these men, you know, thinking, thinking ahead to what, uh, you know, what their lives would be like as single parents, which is not something they ever signed up for. They've, uh, and I, I imagine that Matt would echo this, you know, they, they feel that their situations are wholly different from their divorced friends who uh, at least someone chose that situation. Uh, you know, for, for these men and their wives, they were, uh, you know, put in this tragic circumstance, and now they're looking to have to piece their lives back together, and they're not coming into a clean, you know. And, you know, Matt, uh, you know, accompanied his wife through her illness, and then, you know, Matt and I haven't spoken before tonight, but I, I, I would, you know, bet money that, you know, on, on the day that his wife passed, he was emotionally wrecked. He was exhausted. He was, you know, kind of in a fog and not knowing which way was up and which way was sideways. And then he's responsible for caring for two young daughters. Um, that's a hell of a lot. And, uh, you know, for for our organization, you know, it, it, like you said, it is kind of a niche organization, but it's really one that uh, has just been completely ignored. And uh, with Matt's wife, uh, you know, having passed, uh, what, six, seven years ago, uh, I'm confident that if if he looked for any kind of resources or any kind of um, you know support groups or anything that were specific to his situation, uh, he would not have found any. You're correct. Right. And actually, Justin, one thing that 
I still remember that after Kara died, right after she died, I'm sitting on my front porch with my mom, and this is hard for me to say because people don't want to hear this. Hello? Do we still have you, Matt? Oh, did we lose Matt? Yes, I'm sorry, Matt. We, Matt, we lost the call with Matt. Uh, Herring, um, <laughs> kind of oh, a bit. right, and he <laughs> left a cliffhanger too. A cliffhanger. Uh, um, well, I'll plug him in as soon as he calls back in. But uh, Maureen had a question for. Uh, yeah, um, yeah. Yep. Well, I was going to ask about just generally kind of the differentiations in caregivers, and I thought, well, you and Matt could probably both speak to it. Um, but you know, if if there is differentiation in support for caregivers who lose a spouse versus whose spouse survives, or caregivers who have children versus those who don't, and what the kind of dynamics are there? Well, I, I, I think that there's, or what I've found in, uh, is, is really a lack of support for caregivers across the board, um, whether mm-hmm. that's during, uh, during their partner's illness, um, during their partner's survivorship, or you know, after their partner's uh, death, if, if, that's, if that's what takes place. You know, the, the focus is on the person with cancer, as it should be, right? I mean, they're, you know, they're the ones who are going through the meat of it. Uh, but especially for, for couples that have children, uh, you know, a lot of those parenting responsibilities are shifted over to the well-parent. Um, you know, we had some of the guys in our group talking about, you know, how, how they and their wives each had their parenting responsibilities, things that they each did. And they over year over the years of their marriage, they kind of worked out, you know, who did what and who who definitely did not do what. Um, but as one as as one of the of the of the couple is is sick and ill and not able to fulfill their caregiving duties, the other one has to step up. And so you're having to step up at a time when you know when a lot is being asked of you already, and when you're not you know, when you're not running on uh, a full tank of gas as it is, and to have. With our group, that situation for these, you know, for these men to have their wives die, uh, it, it just it just makes the dynamic that much more challenging. And we haven't even talked about all the other challenges that go, whether it be in-laws or you know, how long do you keep your wedding ring on? Um, mm-hmm. You know, how long how long do you keep pictures of uh, your children's mother and your wife up in the living room because your kids might want to have that picture up forever, but Eventually, if you start dating, that may cause some friction. There's just all kinds of things that, to be honest, before we met with these men, I had, I, I don't know that I would have given thought to, but now uh, the guys in our group are really teaching us. And like we said, they're the ones who have informed uh, our website and uh, are, are really uh, with us on the forefront of, of seeing what we can do to help out this population. Sure. And I'm sure the answer to those questions probably they just differ from person to person, I'm guessing. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. You know, and you know, especially when you think of parenting, you know, each couple has their own, you know, their own divvying of who's responsible for what. Um, so it absolutely differs for each couple and in each situation. Uh, but I, I think to say that it's that it's challenging and at times overwhelming, uh, that would probably be a, a very universal statement. Sure. So, Justin, in terms of the the therapy, you mentioned like this could be a long-term continuum. Of, of psychosocial care in terms of reintegration into your life, raising your children. Um, what types of social services do you have for the children themselves? 
You know what? That, that's a good question. When we started up this group, we started just a group for men, and then we actually have uh, student-athletes here at UNC watch the kids while we're with the fathers. And what they do now is just is just play games and have fun. And uh, since we've been having the athletes work with us, they, they, we, we can hear them down the hall, and they seem to be having a much more uh, physical, much more rowdy time than they used to. Um, but that's we, what we don't do is we don't have a separate therapy group for the kids, and we've thought about introducing that at several points. But the men in our group have given us the, feed, the feedback that they kind of like, you know, they, they have to be very selfless. Right? It's rarely about them, and they kind of like having two hours a month when they can just come and kind of like Matt was saying with his board where the, where the caregivers can just let it fly, that these guys can have two hours to you know, meet with their peers and just let it fly and get stuff off their chest and hear from other people and what they're going through and not have to think about what their kids are doing in therapy next door. They can hear their kids having fun. They know their kids are taken care of, and they can really focus on themselves. And, and what we know from the research and what we're starting to look at in our own research is the, very, the best predictor of how a bereaved child copes is how their surviving parent copes. Um, that's yeah, the number one predictor. Good. Matty, yeah, back? I'm sure Matt could attest to that. Yeah, I'm back. Sorry, we lost you Matt, for a second you, here. You, you, you left us with a cliffhanger. I think we're all waiting to hear. Yeah, I don't know where I got cut off. <laughs> yeah, you were cut off. You were talking about speaking to your mother or your mother-in-law after your wife's death and how there was something you were thinking and it just went completely silent and we thought you were just leaving us in suspense. Um, oh, no. <laughs> yeah, so, so we'd love to, to hear the rest of that because it seemed like a really good thought. Yeah, this was back when we were t- discussing just the things that you can't tell your friends and you can't tell your that people just don't want to hear, but I was it was my mom and she asked me how I felt. And... I said I felt relieved because mm-hmm. the inevitable was was here. It was done. I mean, for months, we everybody knew she was going to die. I didn't want her to. I mean, I'd give anything to have a little bit more time, but I knew she was going to die. I knew my life was on hold until it happened. And it it's like you're stand, you have a Band-Aid, you know it's got to come off, so do you rip it off or do you pull it off slowly? And once that happened, I could start thinking about what my new life was going to be. And we all, I mean, you refer to that as your new normal, and that's in all sides of the cancer world. Here's your new normal. What is it? I didn't know. But it was it was time to find out. And those are things that you can tell other people who are, in the same situation, but you can't tell other people. You can't tell the patient. You can't tell your friends because they don't want to hear it. They don't expect that. But not everybody feels that way. So, well, we were talking about um, with, with Justin the uh, some of the granular things that happen over time, such as how do you how, how long do you keep pictures of your your wife or your the mother of your children up in the house. Uh, starting to date again, getting you know, trying to move forward, um, coaching your children, um, explaining where mommy is when they're in school to other children. Did you ha- have these experiences? All of them. Yeah. It's. I mean, I think a lot depends on how old the kids are. I mean, my kids were three and five at the time, 
and they go through different stages. Certain things will come, will bring it up. Certain things they want to see it. Certain things they don't. But you just have to go with what the kid was. And I think I've gone through stages where I pushed it down and where I tried to be completely open with it. And in my experience, the best is you just you've got to be completely open with it. And anybody you date has to be accepting of that. I mean, if they're not accepting of it, then you got to move on or you got to figure it out because you mentioned divorce earlier. When you get divorced, it, I mean, it was a conscious decision to not be together. Half the stuff is gone. It's a bad relationship that you're trying to get out of your life. When someone dies, everything is still there. All, the, all her stuff is still in the house. So when you start to date, someone will come over and see all that stuff in the house. And then they feel like they're competing with a ghost, and you're trying to maintain these happy memories of this person that this other person you're dating doesn't really understand or want to know why. And at 40 years old, they're usually divorced, so they've got their ex in their life. They don't un- and they're, that they're trying to get rid of. They don't understand why your ex is in your life, and you're trying to keep them there. And then you go through the explaining that. If your spouse didn't, if my wife didn't die, I wouldn't be dating you. Huh. And that's right. hard for people to hear. I mean, they they basically hear it as I'm second choice. But that's hard right. for a lot of people to hear. And the dating, it's a difficult issue. But I didn't date for a year, and I probably should have taken more time before I started. And I'm still dealing with the issues. I realized that I didn't deal with a lot of things, but I went through therapy and was told that it's going to come up at several times. So throughout my life, I'm expecting to have to revisit these issues with myself and with my kids. Hmm. Maureen? No? Okay. Well, uh, Rendered speech. <laughs> I know. It, it, there really is no no response to those questions, but in terms of the women that you do meet once you decide to date, are, are they? It's kind of like you're, you're forever stigmatized, like you're wearing the uh, the scarlet letter, correct? And and how do you navigate that process without feeling rejection because of a situation that you didn't cause? And again, I'm sure Justin's nodding on the radio here that this is more or less identical to the narratives and patients he's seeing at UNC, correct? Uh, that's that's exactly right. When I'm when I'm hearing Matt talk, he he would um, he he would fit right in with the men that we've met within our group because his experiences are the same. And uh, you know the the dating is not the first thing you think about, um, but it is something that comes up. And then how to how to navigate that? Um, you know when you probably haven't dated in however many years it's been. And uh, you know one of the guys in our group said that he just didn't feel like he had any game. <laughs> And then when he, and then when he and then when he tried it, it was you know what does he you know how, how much does he tell his kids what does he tell his children uh, you know when does he invite her over to the house does he doesn't he I mean there's just a, a a myriad of questions that like Matt said are are not there when there's a when the situation is from divorce um, you know there's no there's no co-parenting as Matt can attest to it's not you know there's no one to uh, kind of pass the baton to off off to every other weekend uh it's on you and it's on you all the time and it can be exhausting when the dads uh termed it the um relentless 
fatigue of soul fatherhood and uh it's you know it's a it's a full-time job and uh dating is just one aspect of that uh but it 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 is one that gains importance the farther away you get from uh the the death of your wife it's interesting uh, that you mentioned this now say go ahead maureen no it's okay go next I was going to say it's interesting that you mentioned the scarlet letter because I found it started out the opposite and ended up being that way because people look at you as he's not divorced, he's a widower, he's proven himself to be a father figure and wanting to have kids, so he's the perfect man. He's not divorced, there's no ex in the picture, he wants to be a father to his kids, let's bring him on. And then as you get into this and you get attached to someone, they start to have these issues with your your ex who's a ghost. And so it kind of flips and almost in some respects you feel like you've been sold a bad bill of goods. But in, also in my experience, I don't know about what you guys deal with, Justin, and your guys, but I went out of a good relationship that was a deep relationship, and so you start dating again and you think it's going to be just like that. I was with Kara for 13 years and you start dating again and you wonder why it's not like it was when your past relationship ended. And so you wonder where, how long it's going to take. And it took me a little while to realize that, oh, it's because this is a three-month relationship right now, and that was a 13-year relationship. It's going to take a long time. But, right, yeah, and, there's, and there's, you know, it's, it's inevitable that you're going to make comparisons you know, with the person that you've started to date versus your wife and has passed away. And, and you know that's a, a wholly unfair comparison, but it's it's one that at least at the beginning I don't think that you can help but make. Yeah. And when you start dating, as you you mentioned that you don't ship them off to your kids don't you don't have every other weekend where you can go out on a date. And as I dated divorced women, they tried to plan things on every other weekend and wondered why I didn't <laughs> do that. But I finally explained that. I have to spend 50 bucks before I ever leave my house to go on a date. So it better be worth it. <laughs> I'm not just Forget gonna, for Matt's I mean, com. Standards yeah. get higher when you spend 50 bucks before you even leave your house, and you yeah. got to think about things a little bit differently. An investment. Maureen? Yeah, so I was wondering, we've been talking a lot. I mean, obviously we're looking from the men's perspective and from the husbands who have been made widowers by the loss of their wives. Um, have either of you had, I mean, I know Matt Herring, Matt Herring, just going to use your full name. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm reading from the top of your bio. Um, you, you work, your website was called Young Cancer Spouses, um, so you probably were working with widowed women as well. Do you see similar experiences or any dissimilarities um, in women who are widowed um, in their experience? The ones that I've really kept in touch with and talked to in greater detail don't have kids. Mm -hmm. And so the issues are really different there, but I know they struggle with a lot of the same issues in trying to form new relationships with people. And so a lot of these things cut across genders. But as being a single parent, everything is out there for single moms. There's very little out there for single dads. And Mm -hmm. the society is built around mom gets the kids so if dad has the kids he's doing mom a favor 
And there's scholarships for single moms. There's help for single moms. There's nothing for single dads. And it focuses around divorced single moms, not the people who have their kids 24-7 as a single dad. I mean, when Mother's Day and Father's Day comes around, I wish all them on Father's Day, I wish all the single moms happy Father's Day. Yeah. And on Mother's Day, I wish all the single fathers happy Mother's Day because we are playing both roles. But we also have, I mean, we can't do it alone. I've got a tremendous support network with my family that I'm really just starting to lean on more than I ever have. And I couldn't do it without them, especially as my daughter hits puberty. It becomes harder and harder for me. But, Mm -hmm. yeah, a lot of these issues just cut across genders. And there's, I mean, everybody has their own issues, but I think men have it a little rougher as single parents just because society thinks they're doing mom a favor when they have the kids. Mm Mm-hmm. Actually, that's the perfect segue to, to close out our interview. I'd like to take the next couple of minutes to have you both comment on what you're describing, the, the sort of the practical uh, impact of losing a spouse as a, and becoming a single father. You know, your work, your career, insurance, dealing with your, your, your in-laws, um, dealing with extended family, uh, possibly the loss of friends, and, and just a whole dynamic shift of everything you wouldn't typically expect, but again, from the father's perspective. Justin, you want to go first? Sure, sure, I'll start. So, um, yeah, you know, it's, I I think that in some ways it's hard to find an aspect of of life, at least in the immediacy, uh, immediate time following the wife's death, that it, that it doesn't affect. Um, You know, thinking about the guys in our group talking about just, arranging for carpools, um, you know, trying to arrange for summer schedules, uh, you know, doing things that they had never done, whether it's, you know, the grocery shopping or the meal planning. Um, you know, none of the dads in our group were, were child bereavement experts prior to the wife's death. And so they've, you know, it's, it's like bringing home a, a, a new baby from the hospital and there's no manual and it, it's hard to know if you're doing it right or wrong. Um, I think there's a real crisis, a crisis in confidence that comes along. Um, with being a a newly widowed father, and like Matt talked about, um, you know, societal expectations and you know resources that are out there are really geared toward women, and that's I think in part because women are more, uh, you know, and there's some research to support this that women are more are more likely to receive or to accept support that's offered to them, and more likely to seek it out. Um, so there's a real tendency for men to uh, you know, suffer in silence more so than women. And then society meets that by not having the resources and by not having, um, you know, Matt mentioned scholarships. And if you go to the bereavement aisle at Barnes & Nobles or anywhere else and look around, um, it's it's difficult to find a book that's not written uh, for, by, or about uh, women. And so I think there's a real, it's, it's a real tendency to feel like you're out on an island and that lack of confidence and lack of assuredness bleeds over into all aspects of life. Um, so I, I would say practically it's, uh, you know, it's our, our guys have described it as an earthquake, and, and they all got their footing, right? They all, you know, time does lead to it getting better, not all the way, but, uh, but for a while there it was, I think they all thought that the situation was very tenuous. 
Yeah, I think you hit on a lot of good points, Justin. For us, Kara was the stay-at-home mom, and I think a lot of families like us, the women generally take the role, the lead role with the kids, and the men tend to take the lead role in working. That isn't always the case, but in our case, she was a stay-at-home mom. So when I became the full-time father, there's a lot of stuff that I had to figure out. Fortunately, we had a really good network in Houston where we lived at the time, and I had moms call me and, hey, there's no school tomorrow, or, hey, don't forget to bring this. And I, I mean, I was really appreciative of that. But when it comes to making friends, we don't fit in any demographic. Mm-hmm. We're not divorced. We have our kids every other weekend. We don't want to get together and complain about our spouse. We've got our kids every weekend, so we're not single and we're not married. So there's, it's kind of hard to find peers that you can get along with easily. Uh, my family has been a great support. You've really got to lean on the family as much as you can if, if you've got the good family that can help you. Um, we basically, I've been in survival mode for a long time. I spent probably two years in Houston in just survival mode trying to make it through the next day. And then I finally just quit, moved back in up to where my parents were. And that helped, helped them. They were able to take care of me so I could take care of myself and get to where I am now and not being in survival mode. Looking at work, it's just your work is not going to be the same. You cannot be focused on your career and focused on your family at the same time. And talking about work-life balance, it's a lot harder when you're a single parent and you don't have every other week with your kids aren't there to spend 10 hours a day. Working prior to Kara getting sick, I was doing postdocs, so we're working 12, 14-hour days. That was pretty common. And I, when she got diagnosed, I was like, okay, I'm going to cut this back to 10-hour days. But I can't do that now. As my kids get older, they need more of me. There's nobody else around. Your work will suffer, and you just have to deal with it. You have to find a new way, a new career. You're not going to be the CEO of your company until your kids have grown up and are able to take care of themselves some more. It's, it's been a big adjustment for me, and I know everybody going through it is having a big adjustment. From the moment you're diagnosed, your whole life is being adjustments one after the other. But it's, I mean, the advice I can give, the best advice I can give is you've got to take care of yourself before you can take care of your kids. Because if you're no good to any anybody, if you're no good to your, yourself, then you can't take care of anybody. And then somebody's going to have to take care of you and you become a burden. So your friends and your family, they really do want to help. When they say, what can I do to help, they really mean it. So lean on them. And I'm, as Justin said, as men, we want to take care of everything. We want to solve all the problems ourselves. But we can't solve all of these problems. And we've got to lean on our friends and our family. And I am, after seven years now of being a single parent, I am just learning to do that myself. If I'd learned this years ago, I'd be in a different situation than what I am now. But it, when people say they want to help, figure out how they can help because they want to do it. So that's my two cents. Gentlemen, a very compelling and uh, important conversation tonight. Uh, and I really do believe that finding someone who walked in your shoes is incredibly valuable. And, and, and yeah. just, uh, Matt, um, thank you 
honestly, thank you so much for entrusting us to bring back to life and curate the Young Cancer Spouses platform. Um, we want to have you as intricately involved with it as possible, and Justin, we'd love to involve you with it as, po- as much as possible as well. Um, it Absolutely. is my hope to become the real beacon of opportunity for this neglected subgroup of the young adult cancer world. And uh, I, I, it's not the last time we'll be discussing this conversation. So, uh, gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us tonight. We've been talking to Matt Herring, uh, founder of Young Cancer Spouses, and Dr. Justin Yop, clinical psychologist and assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry at UNC. He's the uh, founder of uh, singlefathersdutocancer.org. Gentlemen, thank you so much for being on the Stupid Cancer Show tonight. Thank you very much. All right. (laughs) Definitely a potent show. Definitely a potent show. Indeed. And he's right. He's right. And it's kind of hard to even talk about it without it sounding sexist, but women do get the lion's share of sentiment in this country, especially single moms. Mm-hmm. And even single moms who are widows are not, it, it, it's just a single mom. Like, and, and they try to, because we did, uh, Jennifer Owens from our, our board is, is, was a widow. Mm-hmm. And she was always, she, I think she talked about, you know, the inherent challenges of, of that as well. So it's, it's a very sticky conversation, but it's, always necessary that we have it yeah absolutely so if you're listening and you are a young uh, cancer spouse and a bereaved father uh, please visit youngcancerspouses.org we are going to curate it we're going to take care of it and we want to make sure it thrives and we'll be connecting UNC Cancer Center and any other cancer center that has a bereaved father program to it so thank you for that and uh, any final thoughts not offhand go team USA Go Team USA. <laughs> All right, now it is time for our closing sequence. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. You ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. Okay, folks, that's our show. Our 296 broadcasts. You hope you have as much fun as we did. Poking and Stick. That's Stupid Cancer. We'd like to thank our guests. Mindy Gross, Dr. Justin Yop, and Matt Herring. Next week's show, author, returning champion, S. Lachlan Jan. Join us for an intensive, exclusive interview with genius Stanford professor of anthropology, Dr. Esh Lachlan Jan, author of Malignant, How Cancer Becomes Us, which explores why cancer remains so confounding despite billions spent looking for a cure. Survivor Spotlight on Cancer Is My Guru blogger, Kathleen Emmett. Subscribe to our show anytime for free on iHeartRadio Talk iTunes podcast and blog talk radio. Check us out anytime at stupidcancer.org and stupidcancershow.org. Remember, folks, if it ain't stupid, it ain't cancer. Live from the chemo deck, on behalf of Andy Goodman, Kenny Kane, Maureen Sweet, myself, 
and the whole team here at the Stupid Cancer Show. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you back here next Monday. Good night, folks. Good night, everybody.